You know, some of us come in here and we don't sing the songs. I know because we don't know them. We're brand new and that's okay. Learn them. But some of us don't sing the hymns. Either A, because we've never been converted and we've got nothing to sing about. Or B, we're people who have a lot of knowledge that has never changed our life. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study in the book of 1 Timothy, one of three pastoral epistles, letters from the Apostle Paul to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. Last week, we began a look at three responsibilities of a pastor and his people. This message is from chapter 1, verses 7 through 20 of 1 Timothy. And as we pick up today, we come to verse 14, where the Apostle Paul shares that he was a former blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy now as we find that Paul was given grace for his sin because he was acting in ignorant unbelief. Now, Paul was wrong and wicked for what he did, but he wants us to understand that his crimes against God and against the church were not the result of his setting his will against the known will of God. He was not sinning presumptuously, as Numbers 15 said, or as the New Covenant says, sinning against the Holy Spirit. He actually thought he was serving God. But nonetheless, this man who tried to please God in his own merit, because those who serve and live in the flesh can never please God, he later wrote, because he tried to serve God in his flesh, he became nothing but a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And so God had mercy. God had compassion on this man. But God also showed him grace. He showered him with his undeserved favor. Look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Of course, these are the verses from which John Bunyan writes his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Now this word abundant is a Greek word that means overflowed. It was used of a river that was so full it just overflowed its banks. And Paul is comparing God's grace to a river that just overflowed its banks. And so he attaches to this word uh, 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 abundant, hooper. He says here, notice, more than abundant. I like the King James. It says exceedingly abundant. Now, you know the word hooper. We get our word hyper in English from it. We speak of hypersensitive people. We speak of hyperactive children. Well, Paul here is speaking of hyperabundant grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so God's grace flooded Paul's heart. It overflowed his heart with the faith and love which were found in Christ Jesus. He was an unbeliever in unbelief, but God flooded his heart with faith. He was hateful and hating others, persecuting the church of God, but God flooded his heart with love. And so he goes on in verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul is saying this. If God's grace is adequate to save me, it can save anybody. 
It's a statement deserving your full acceptance. Embrace it with all your heart. If God could save Saul of Tarsus, he can save you. You know, if he came in here today, we wouldn't think that he was just neutral. We would have concluded Paul was beyond saving. He was out and out for the enemy. Most of us probably would, never would have prayed for Saul's conversion. And Paul is helping us to understand that if God can save me, he can save anyone. When he writes his letter to the Corinthians early on in his ministry, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Some years go by and he writes again to the Ephesian ch church and he broadens the term. And he says in Ephesians 3 and verse 8, I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the least of all the Christians. And when he comes to the end of his life, Paul says, I am the chief of all sinners. You see, as a man grows in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as he learns more and more what God is like, he sees more and more what his sin is like. And so Paul said, this is a statement deserving your full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the chief, I am the foremost of all. And that's why he adds in verse 16, and yet for this reason, I found mercy. Why? In order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example, as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul is reminding us that the grace of God that was shown to him was not only something that resulted in his conversion, but it was also an example of God's perfect patience. Now, the word patient here, I think, is better probably translated in the old King James. Long-suffering. They used two English words put together into one. And it's actually two Greek words put together into one. Macrothumios. Macro, you know our English word macro. It means something that's big or long. We talk about macroeconomics. Thumos, we get our word thermometer or thermos from it. It refers to something that deals with the connotation of heat. Well, the Greek word means passion or anger or rage. In English, we could have translated long-tempered. Literally, the word means taking a long time to get angry. That's God's patience. You would have thought that God would have just snuffed Paul out. Paul, I've had enough of you. You've locked up enough of my servants. You've killed enough of my evangelists. You've ripped off enough of my pastors. Paul, you're out of here. Your little ticker's going to stop in your chest and you're dead meat. But Paul became an example of God's long-suffering, of God's patience. Jesus Christ endured the blasphemy of the Apostle Paul and the persecution of the Apostle Paul because Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because to persecute his body was to persecute the head. And yet the Lord Jesus did not smite him with judgment. Even so, Paul is telling us that he is an example of God's patience towards the rest of the world. And if God could save Paul and be patient with him and then use Paul in the mighty way that he used him, he can use you, no matter what your background has been like. 
And so when Paul thought about this truth, I mean, it just moved him into a cacophony of praise. Look at it. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was not some dry, dull, unexcited theologian. No, the heart of this theologian beat the praise, was praise in his heart. That's what drove this man. You know, some of us come in here and we don't sing the songs. I know because we don't know them. We're brand new and that's okay. Learn them. But some of us don't sing the hymns. Either A, because we've never been converted and we've got nothing to sing about. Or B, we're people who have a lot of knowledge that has never changed our life. Paul, when he thought of the magnificent grace of God, it moved him to praise God. Now unto him, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. He was excited, and it took no less of the grace of God to save you than it took to save Paul. It took no less of Christ's blood to redeem you as it took to redeem Paul. And so, one, we are to teach the law of God. Secondly, we are to preach the gospel of God. And then third, if we are to fill our responsibility as a local church, we are to defend the faith of God. Now, in his closing paragraph... Paul turns to Timothy with the former charge that he raised earlier in the chapter. And he points out Timothy's duty in contrast to these men who had become shipwrecked in their faith. And I learned two truths from what he says. First, that a good conscience results in a good defense. A good conscience results in a good defense. Look at verse 18. This command... I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Paul reminds Timothy that he is there in Ephesus by divine appointment. God had chosen him. And when God chose him, when God set him apart at the beginning of the second missionary journey, where those men in the church at Lystra laid hands on Paul, on Timothy, to ordain him to the gospel ministry, accompanied with that ordination were some prophecies that were spoken. He'll later refer to these in chapter 4. There he says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Prophecies accompanied the commissioning of the apostle or, uh, of Timothy, just as it did the apostle Paul in Barnabas in Acts 13. Now, we're not told of the content of those prophecies, of what was said that day, but God just reminds Timothy through his brother Paul. And of course, this reminder would put some steel in this man's spine. When he faced those difficult days, and remember, he was in a church where a lot of the church members were giving him a hard time as a pastor. And when he faced those days, those prophecies that God had made would put steel in him. And so he says to Timothy, you are to fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. Please understand, if a pastor or missionary or a church worker or any church member is God's servant, called by the Spirit of God, gifted by the Spirit of God, obeying the will of God, he'll be able to finish the course. He'll be able to stay with it. In the last 25 years that I've been in the ministry, 
I have often found relief from discouragement. When I go back in my mind, as Paul tells Timothy, in 1978, when a group of men laid hands on me and ordained me to the gospel ministry, and with that ordination, recognized my gifts and my abilities and my calling from God, and it just has a way of putting stale as I remember what God has called me to. And so he says, Timothy, fight the good fight. Literally, the Greek says, war the good warfare. And this word for fight or war does not refer to a single skirmish, but a whole series of battles. You know, some Christians, they face just a little bit of opposition. Just one little bit of criticism. Just one little bump in the road and they quit. And you can tell a whole lot about a person by what it takes to stop him. But if your conscience is clear, if you're walking in obedience to God, it doesn't matter what people think about you. You don't care because you want to please God above all else. And so as a pastor, as a church member, to maintain the faith, we must maintain a good conscience. Your ministry, understand, is an overflow of your relationship with the Lord. And so Paul is speaking of the inward condition of the servant of God. If you are to wage war, not against flesh and blood, because that's not the real battle. The real battle is not people, Paul says, but the devil working behind people people, powers and principalities and evil forces that are at work in high places. If you are to wage war with your enemy, the devil, you must first be concerned with the inner disposition of your heart. And so he tells Timothy and he gives him some pointed instruction that a good conscience results in a good defense. Secondly, and it is equally true, a bad conscience results in shipwreck. Now as a pastor... As a church leader, I am to be uncompromising in sound doctrine. A pastor who knows the truth but allows falsehood to go in to make the people happy is giving up a good conscience. So we got preachers today. The pressure on a pastor today from the culture, from the society, is to let women be pastors of churches. Now, before we're done with this epistle, we're going to see that women have a high and holy place. And before we're done with all the pastoral epistles, we'll have a full picture of what God has called women to do, which is different what God has called men to do. And while we are equal in Christ, we have different roles. But there are a lot of pastors who feel the pressure of the culture. We need women deacons. We need women elders. We need women preachers. And they bend and they go against the clear dictates that no one debated on for 1950 years of church history. And in the process, they are shipwrecked. They are giving up a good conscience and with it, the ministry that God had for them. And so a pastor who under his jurisdiction either compromises the truth, sometimes by leaving some truths out, you know, you can tell a whole lot about a preacher by what he won't preach on. There are some things he won't address because he doesn't want to address it. He wants everybody to love him. He wants his church to grow by tickling the ears of people. But a man who allows that to go on under his jurisdiction is not keeping the faith in a good conscience. So Paul says, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, the word rich, which in the original goes back, it modifies a good conscience. 
Some had rejected the blessing of a good conscience, and so they had suffered shipwreck to their faith. Now you understand can have a moral or a spiritual shipwreck if you don't keep your conscience pure and clean. In his book, <clears throat> The Vanishing Conscience, John MacArthur tells the story of a Latin American Airlines, Avianca Airlines, that crashes into a mountain. It plunged into the side of a mountain some years back, and everyone on board was killed. And when they went through the rubble and they found that <clears throat> black box, I guess also called an orange box, they found the last recorded words of what was said in the cockpit. And when they played it, they could not believe it. <clears throat> they were in absolute shock. Now, in this particular airlines, the warning system happened to be in English. And the warning system came on in that shrill tone to get their attention, to arrest them. Pull up, pull up, pull up. And the next word you heard uttered in that black box tape was, Shut up, gringo and he flicked the switch off. Evidently, he thought that the system was malfunctioning, and so he just turned it off. Now, your conscience is a warning system, and God does not want you to end up in spiritual and moral shipwreck. And so sometimes your conscience will say, pull up, pull up, pull up. And Paul is telling you that if you don't want to go shipwrecking the Christian faith, you better keep and maintain a good conscience. And that's what some of these men did not do. He mentions two by name in verse 20. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. These were professing Christians who made shipwreck of their faith by sinning against their consciences. Now, bad doctrine is rooted in sin. It's rooted in bad conduct. Now, this Alexander is different from the one whom he specifically notes to be different, Alexander the coppersmith. We don't know anything about him. We know a little bit about Hymenaeus. We'll learn of him in Paul's second letter to Timothy and how he had allegorized the word of God and so distorted the biblical teaching on resurrection. But it's interesting that God describes these two believers as having suffered shipwreck. And I think it's interesting the Spirit of God would give that term to Paul because shipwreck does not necessarily imply death. In fact, four times, according to Paul, he suffered shipwreck literally, physically, on boats. Now understand, a true believer can never lose their salvation. The Bible, as plainly as it can make it, teaches that once you are truly saved, you are saved forever. But please understand that a true believer can reject a good conscience, and so they can get so messed up and so balled up in false doctrine that they suffer shipwreck in their ministry. And so Paul, by apostolic authority, says, I'm going to deliver them over to Satan. Now, it's interesting. You might want to read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, because there he describes a fella whose in immorality 
the kind that the pagans disdain. He's sleeping with his stepmother, and the church at Corinth didn't do a thing about it. And Paul says, no, I'm not there physically. You should have disciplined him, but since you didn't, I'm going to do it in spirit, and I'm going to deliver that one over to Satan that his spirit might be saved in the day of redemption. It speaks of church discipline. When pastors or elders take a member and they disfellowship that member, they put them under the discipline of the church, under the discipline of God, and they leave the protective umbrella of the church and it opens them up to the attacks of the evil one. And the thought behind it is that God would use that to bring about repentance. That's his heart for these men because the purpose of church discipline is restoration. Paul said, I'm going to do this. Why? So that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, as we leave this passage of Scripture, let me highlight some practical applications. First, it is our duty to teach the law and the gospel. As Christians, it is our duty to teach the law and the gospel. The two belong together. Neither can stand alone because God always links them together. To say that you can separate them would be like tearing your Bible in half. Either throwing away the law of the Old Testament or throwing away the, the gospel of the New Testament. The law cannot stand alone because the function of the law is to expose sin. But the law can neither meet our need for forgiveness. The law's task is to reveal sin to the sinner and then to show them their need to go to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. But if the law cannot stand alone, neither can the gospel stand alone. The gospel cannot justify us until the law has first condemned us. And the gospel cannot sanctify us until the law has first shown us the path of righteousness that we are to live once we are saved. And so we must teach both. And I believe one of the reasons there are so few conversions, real conversions, in America today is because we've lowered the bar of God. We have said something that God has not said. We've made an unlawful use of the law. And so men do not see the holiness of God as they ought. And that law is reflective of God's holiness. And it's not until they see that they have offended a holy God that they will ever come to Him for repentance. Second, I am reminded that as believers we must guard our consciences. We must guard our consciences. We must keep a good, or what he will later say, a pure conscience. Now, Paul knew how to be bold. He knew how to be confident. He could stand before human tribunals without bending, backing up. I mean, Paul just stood with steel in his spine for what was right. Why? Because he had a clear conscience. But the same reason is why so many people aren't fearful today, because they don't have a good conscience. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they hid themselves from the presence of God. They were fearful of God. They didn't want to look at God in His face. Why? Because they no longer had a good conscience. And a person without a good conscience cannot look at God in the face. It's one of the reasons some people don't come to church. Because they don't want to look at God in the face. It's one of the reasons some of us here this morning cannot spend time lingering with God in prayer, spending time feeding on His Word, just me and God all alone, because we don't have a good conscience. 
But when your heart is right, when it's bubbling over, you want to live in the presence of God. And so as a believer, you need to guard your conscience. And if your conscience is stained this morning, God gives the believer the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins, confess homilageo, to say the same thing God says, to repent, to say, God, I've rebelled against your authority. God, I turn from my rebellion. And God says he is faithful time and time again. And he acts righteously to forgive you and to cleanse you from all of your sin and filth. You know, Adam and Eve hid themselves because they feared the presence of God. And the Bible teaches when Jesus Christ comes back again, they will hide themselves from the Lamb of God who's upon the throne. But I want to tell you, in their dirty consciences, they will not be able to hide from the piercing, holy God with whom they will have to stand before. And if you have never met him, if he has never given you a new conscience where you have an assurance in your heart that you are his, I invite you today to turn to him before it is eternally too late. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your magnificent grace shown to us as sinners. We thank you for the trustworthy statement of Scripture deserving our full acceptance that the Lord Jesus was incarnated. He came into the world not as a teacher, not as a model, not as a philosopher, but as a Savior to save us. And we bless you, Lord Jesus, for your wonderful kindness in your own body on the cross to bear our sin. And if you're here today and you're saved but your conscience is dirty. And I want to tell you, if you persist in it, you're in great danger of becoming shipwrecked in terms of your testimony and your ministry for God. Would you, before a holy God today, bring that sin and before Him repent of it? Would you choose to walk in the light, to obey as he is in the light, that the blood of Jesus' Son would cleanse you from that sin? Now, if you've never been saved, today is the day of salvation. And if you ignore that, you may end up sinning high-handedly, presumptuously, stiff-arming God, strengthening your neck and resisting the Holy Spirit of God such that you'll never be saved. You'll never have another moment, possibly, when God will be merciful and compassionate to you where he would speak to your heart as he is this day. Would you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I turn from my sin. And I trust your blood as a payment for my sin. I thank you for taking my wrath. He welcomes sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. He wishes that none should perish. Would you come in faith? The Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. The Bible says God is not like a man that he would ever lie. The Bible says God cannot lie. Faith says, God, I believe what you said. And because God did what he did, he can promise what he promises. Whosoever 
will may come. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you say in faith, Lord Jesus, save me. And Lord Jesus, because you've saved me, I will confess you openly and publicly before men. For a copy of today's message, Three Responsibilities of a Pastor and His People, call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program 1TM2. And don't forget, it's not too late to sign up for this September's Footsteps of Jesus Tour of Israel. Complete details are available online at searchthescriptures.org or by calling 877-787-7478. Tomorrow we begin a look at the Christian worship and mission. Join us then as we search the scriptures.